0: Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. My name is Eric Trexler. I am your one and only full-time permanent host. But for today's episode, I am going to be joined by a special temporary guest co-host. His name is Greg Knuckles. Greg, thanks for joining me. It is an honor and a privilege, and uh, I thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Um, So I mentioned in last week's episode, we are changing up the format a little bit. We're doing episodes every single week, so they're going to be Twice as frequent, but about half as long. And last week, we ran out of time to do some of our Q&As, so we decided that for the first time in a while, we're going to do a a total Q&A episode today. So it's all going to be question and answer, so we will dive right into that. But before we do that, uh, a couple things. If you enjoy the show and you want to support it, there are several ways that you can do that. You can like, rate, and subscribe the show and share it with others. You could use our discount code at BulkSupplements.com. The code is SBSPOD. That gets you a 5% discount at BulkSupplements.com. You could also subscribe to the Mass Research Review that Greg and I are both co-authors of. And finally, if you want to check out our diet app called Macro Factor, uh, we do have a free trial, so you can take it for a spin, see if you like it, and that would be a great way to support the show, and we would certainly appreciate that. So Now, we're going to get into some questions and answers. I am going to start. uh, We're going to go back and forth here. But first, I got a question from Dylan. And Dylan asked, uh, I've got a question about protein metabolism. was looking at a paper. uh, Protein overfeeding resulted in no gains in body fat, even though the average caloric increase was around 800 calories. So Dylan was wondering, if, if there's even a possible mechanism that, that our body can use to convert amino acids into uh, free fatty acids and then store them ultimately as fat tissue. Uh, so basically, the question was, you know, the, the root of it, there are a couple papers uh, looking at very high protein overfeeding. And in those papers, There's a curious lack of fat storage. So uh, basically they said, hey, you know, have these really high protein intakes. We're talking upwards of three or four grams per kilogram per day. So, you know, the RDA for protein in America, the the guideline says to shoot for like 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram of body mass per day. We're talking about in these overfeeding studies, three and a half, sometimes even close to four and a half grams per kilogram, which is a ton of protein. But in the course of these studies, these individuals who were free-living individuals uh, were instructed, hey, eat these really high-protein intakes, but keep doing your thing, uh, lift some weights, we'll see what happens. And so over the course of eight weeks, you know, in one of these studies, there was really a series of three of these overfeeding studies by Antonio and colleagues. Uh, in one of them, for example, like the, uh, the poster mentioned here, Theoretically, the high-protein group was eating like 800 extra calories compared to the control group, uh, and over a, an eight-week span of time, they did not seem to accumulate any additional fat mass compared to the other group eating 800 fewer calories, and that is a really astronomical calorie gap between group, but between groups. So, before I get into um, some of the applied research on the topic, the first part of the question was. Is it even possible for us to really do anything with these extra calories that are coming from protein overfeeding? Can we use them for energy? Can we store them for fat? And the very simple answer is yes. So um, our body is pretty good at stuff, um, which is one of the reasons that there's so much argument in the nutrition world is because like you can go on a really wide range of diets and feel pretty okay. And if you're really excited about your diet, you might even feel great about it, you know? So that's why you, you see so many people saying, I went virtually no carb, or I went really low fat, or all animal product, or all plant product, and everybody's stoked about it, and everybody feels good.
1: Yeah, there are about a half dozen different redundant pathways to accomplish virtually anything that you'd want to do, with very few exceptions, like, you know, essential amino acids. There are a handful that your body can't manufacture itself. Most other things you'd want to do related to energy metabolism, there are a lot of roads that that lead to Rome.
0: Exactly. So w- when our body's breaking down carbs, a lot of times what we're trying to basically get to the kind of end destination is let's turn this into some pyruvate or some acetyl-CoA and let's plug those into the pathways of energy metabolism. We can throw those, you know, we can do glycolysis with carbs, obviously. We can also, you know, throw that acetyl-CoA into the Krebs cycle, uh, use some of the products from there, throw them into the electron transport chain. We're using these kind of basic foundational building blocks that contain energy, throwing them through these pathways and getting ATP as a result. And whatever's left over, we can find a way to kind of make sure that we're storing fat when we have excess energy. And, you know, we can do so much inner conversion because when we're breaking down carbs, when we're breaking down fats, when we're breaking down protein, after we kind of strip the amino group off of extra extra protein in the diet, you know, we take that amino group off and then we're left with what's left and we can still turn that into pyruvate, turn that into acetyl-CoA, or it'll turn into an intermediate that can go right into the Krebs cycle or the TCA cycle. So when we're talking about metabolism of carbs and fats and protein, it's kind of like dealing with currency. Like we can exchange it when we need to exchange it. You're you're not going to end up with, you know, a, a huge amount of currency and say, ah, it's the wrong currency, there's just nothing I can do here. There are exchanges that are possible, and we're ultimately breaking it down into the same energy-containing building blocks that we're throwing into pathways, whether those pathways are going toward uh, creating ATP or we're just funneling that towards storage for, for later use. So macronutrient metabolism is extremely flexible if we have a bunch of extra calories coming in from fat, we can deal with that energy. And the way we deal with it is we either oxidize it for ATP in the short term, or we convert it to something that we can store for later. And in some cases that will be fat. Now, a lot of times people will look at these types of questions and they will kind of skip a step and go straight to PubMed. Like, I think there's a lot of value. We've talked about this before. If you want to get a good handle on general metabolism, you want to start at the textbook rather than going straight to the individual experimental evidence, right? So sometimes I'll see people who are like looking for experimental evidence of protein getting directly converted to fat for storage. You want to take several steps back, get the lay of the land for metabolism, and then start looking for what actually happens in experimental conditions. So a great example that's analogous is a lot of times people will wonder if we can store extra carbs as fat. You know, if you have a really high carb diet and you're overfeeding, and it's the same kind of question. Do we have pathways where we can convert carbohydrate into fat um, and then store that? Sure we do, but the body would much rather just burn off the extra carbs to the extent that it can and just store the dietary fat that's already fat. So a lot of times we'll see these really high carb overfeeding studies and experimentally, it looks like there's not a lot of conversion to fat, Uh, You know, just straight conversion carb to fat. It doesn't mean it's not possible. It doesn't mean we don't have the pathways. It's just the body is crunching the numbers and saying, I'd much rather just oxidize the carbs and store the fat. And if I really must, then sure, I'll do some conversion of carbs to fat. So it's a, a kind of a similar deal with protein. Um, so yeah, protein, if we want to store it to, as fat, if we have to, we can ultimately convert it all the way down to like acetyl-CoA and then do lipogenesis with that acetyl-CoA and we can store it away. So that's the, the the short answer is, yeah, if, if you're overfeeding, whether you're overfeeding carb, fat, protein, whatever, there are going to be differences in the pathways getting utilized in terms of, you know, what our body prefers to do in certain situations. Uh, the efficiency of fat storage will be different. So if you overfeed with 800 uh, calories worth of carbs versus fat versus protein, you're probably going to have, you know... Uh, just due to the thermic effect of feeding, the fat is going to get stored very, very easily. Uh, the thermic effect of carbohydrate is a little bit higher. We might not store it with the exact same efficiency. Uh, and then protein has the highest thermic effect. So if you were going to say, I'm going to overfeed no matter what with a thousand extra extra calories on top of what I'm already eating, what can I overfeed and have the smallest relative amount of fat gain? It probably would go in that order, right? So you, you'd, have an easier time storing the most uh, most fat tissue coming from fat as a, in an overfeeding scenario, slightly less with carbs, but it's kind of negligible, and then slightly less again with protein due, the, due to the thermic effect. Um, now, one thing that I think is important to recognize when it comes to the specific studies being mentioned here by Antonio and colleagues, um, this is no fault of the participants or the researchers. I want to say that uh, on the front end here. But I am very skeptical uh, about the idea that there's these 800 extra calories and we simply don't know where they're going. I'm also skeptical that it's just 800 calories of like straight thermogenesis. Like that doesn't line up well with our understanding of metabolism and energetics. I think what you have to keep in mind with the studies by Antonio is these are free living participants and self reported um, uh, dietary data. So I think a really informative paper is one by Hahn and colleagues. Uh, Cody Hahn is actually one of our coaches at Stronger by Science. But they did a study where they had three different overfeeding conditions. Uh, and in one of them, it was they were trying to get people to just ramp up their whey protein week over week over week. So they said like, week one here, take some protein, but week two and week three and week four, all the way to week six, they were supposed to increase their protein intake by 25 grams every single week. Um, and what happened in that study over six weeks, and they did very, very thorough nutrition reporting. It just didn't happen. Uh, like the, the people started on high protein diets. And if you've ever tried to go from like a very high protein diet to a very, very high protein diet, it's not fun. No. And like, you would only do it if you literally had to. Yeah. So like, I mean, they basically started around like 175 grams a day of protein and they were supposed to increase 25 grams every week for six weeks. They ended up getting to like 195 or 200 and being like, whatever, dude, I'm done. And actually their, their total calorie intake was lower than the other two groups Mm -hmm. because, you know, trying to force feed yourself whey protein it sucks, and it's also very satiating. So what you'll find is if you're trying to give yourself a 300 grams of weight or of protein a day, mostly coming from whey, you're probably going to find that you're not eating much else because you're yeah. very, very full. And unless someone's making you do it, you're probably going to do that for like three days and be like, this sucks. I'm not going to do this anymore. So I've got a story related to that. I don't know if I've talked about this on the podcast before. I, I feel like I
1: have, but I'm not positive. But uh, back in the day, um, when I was like maybe 19 or 20 or so, uh, I learned about DC-style bodybuilding, uh, like dog crap training. And uh, you know, so I, I got into all of that, and there's nutrition recommendations that go along with it. And I don't remember all of them, but one of the kind of bedrocks, like one of the cornerstones of nutrition advice in that community is just like, eh you know, regardless of the details, just eat like four or 500 grams of protein per day and everything else will more or less sort itself out. Um, so I was like, okay, cool. Like I'll, I'll give that a shot. Uh, so I tried, like I I was tracking everything and I was averaging something North of 400 grams of protein for like two weeks. And I just said, fuck that. Like I, I can't do this. I, I can maybe shoot for 300 grams per day. Uh, and like I was in college as well, like I, I had a meal plan, um, but like the cafeteria didn't have many like good, relatively low calorie, high protein options. So what my diet looked like at the time is they had this little salad bar where you could put like little cubes of ham on top of your salad, and like deli ham is is pretty lean, uh, so I would just like go and get a plate. And just load it up with like little like tiny cubed ham slices and just eat that with this or a uh, little like ham cubes and just eat that with a spoon, um, which I imagine is probably more satiating than whey protein. And also ham is very salty. So I think I was I get-
0: going to say, I hope that your blood pressure isn't too responsive to dietary sodium. No, I, I I don't
1: think it is. I, I don't think I'm like a sodium blood pressure responder. Uh, but over just like the first week of doing that, I put on like eight pounds, which (laughs) I think, I think was 100% water retention from how much deli ham I was eating. Um, but yeah, that shit was fucking miserable, dude. Yeah. Um, so anyone who is actually following that dietary advice, I don't think you benefit from eating that much protein, but if you are doing that and doing it consistently, Uh, you have a lot more willpower to eat protein than I do.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So like I said, there's a study by Han and colleagues, which gives a window into like, what is the likelihood that a lot of people really are just going like four and a half grams per kilogram per day and not having a huge like kind of like non-volitional reduction in calorie intake, uh, or, or or at least just a total replacement of their calories that they were, that would have been carbs and fat, just replacing that with protein. I mean, when you look at really meticulously reported studies like the one by Hahn and colleagues, you'll see it's not very typical for people to be able to say, oh, yeah, I'll just like triple my protein intake or double it, and I'll just leave everything else the same. Like, it's not easy to do. Yeah. Um, And there's also a study by Bray and colleagues in 2012 where they did very rigorous overfeeding with varying levels of protein. So like the levels of protein were 5% of energy up to 25% of energy, which I think spanned all the way from like right around the RDA, like close to that like 0.7 or 0.8 grams per kilogram, uh, all the way up to like three grams per kilogram. And this study was complete inpatient metabolic ward. Every calorie that these individuals consumed for the study period, um, and I think it was eight weeks, which is really impressive if that's the case, every morsel they ate was prepared and provided by the research staff. And every instance of them consuming calories was supervised by the research staff. And in that scenario, there was nothing weird about protein overfeeding. There was no like loophole where it's like, man, these are like free calories. Everything made sense in terms of the amount of fat mass that was gained and the amount of fat free mass that was gained. So with protein overfeeding, the closer you get to really tightly controlled designs, the more protein overfeeding completely makes sense and does exactly what you'd expect the additional calories, there's a little bit of uh, increase in energy expenditure due to the thermic effect of feeding. That might have a little impact on the propensity to store fat just because of burning calories. Nothing biochemically weird about that. Uh, and then the fat-free mass, you know, it really just comes down to you know, if you're having a huge increase in protein intake from a very low-protein diet, you're probably going to store some extra fat-free mass just because you were under-eating protein previously. But Uh, Yeah, I know that there are some studies floating around that make it seem like there's some weird biochemical stuff going on with protein overfeeding, almost like it's some kind of biochemistry loophole that gives you free calories. It's really not the case. And uh, unfortunately, you know, the calories that are going in are going to be dealt with either through an increase in thermogenesis or just storage of tissue. So uh, that's it. Yeah, so high protein overfeeding. Can it lead to fat gain? Absolutely. And that fat gain is very much in line with what we would calculate based on our understanding of metabolism. Mm -hmm. All right. You are up, Greg. All righty. So this
1: first question I'm addressing is from Derek in the Facebook group. Uh, And I'm primarily addressing it, not because I have a great answer to it, but because every time we throw up Q&A threads, uh, someone asks some variation of this question. Uh, and I've avoided attempting to answer it for a long time, so whatever, just gonna rip the Band-Aid off, uh, mostly just to be able to link this every other time this question comes up. Anyway, the question is, uh, I have always wondered why I ache more during my deload week. It doesn't even need to be after an entire block of training. My back tends to ache more a few days into the deload than it ever does during my training weeks. I have more nagging, aching, and pains as well. So, you know, basically why might someone be experiencing more physical discomfort during deload weeks than you know when they're actually like actively training pretty hard so the explanation that i've heard for this so one one thing just to note on the front end uh i've not seen like direct human research on this so we're we're purely in the realm of anecdote and kind of looking around for potential explanatory mechanisms so Anyone who is answering this question with a super high degree of confidence, uh, either they're aware of research that I was in, unable to find or they're just kind of bullshitting. So just <laughs> be aware of that on the front end uh, and I am going to do my best to, to not bullshit you with this answer. Um, but yeah, so the the explanation that I've heard from other sources before is that when you're training hard, you're putting stressors on your body, and as a result, your sympathetic nervous system output ramps up, and along with that comes increases in ketocholamine levels. So, epinephrine, norepinephrine, uh, basically adrenaline. And those chemicals can, to some degree, uh, like numb pain or discomfort responses. Like, you know, I- I'm sure you've heard anecdotes from like athletes who maybe have a rolled ankle, but you know, they put on an ankle brace and get on the court and, you know, they, they just forget that they've injured their ankle while they're actually playing. And then they get off the court and like they're limping all over the place, like the, the pain comes back. Uh, and so, you know, maybe maybe that's just purely due to adrenaline. And I don't know that I fully buy that explanation for a couple reasons. One is that it is true that when you're putting a lot of stressors on your body, even when you're not necessarily, um, you know, actively exercising, your base like your your catecholamine levels at rest could still be elevated to some degree. So if you if you track HRV, for example, heart rate variability, that's one of those things that it's roughly trying to assess. If you have uh, low heart rate variability even at rest, that means your uh, sympathetic nervous system even at rest is ramped up a little bit. So, um, you know, that dynamic is in play, but I I think that the level of sympathetic nervous system output and the level of adrenaline you need to like pretty significantly numb pain is quite a bit higher than it would be at rest, even if it is somewhat elevated from baseline, you know? So when you're actually training, you might get a pretty intense analgesic response, uh, like a a pain reducing response from some of those chemicals. But even if they are slightly elevated at rest, I don't know that it would be enough to be physiologically relevant for like numbing pain and discomfort. And another reason that I'm somewhat skeptical of that explanation is there are other things that you can do that can ramp up ketocolamine output that also have a tendency to simultaneously increase pain perception. So for example, after just like one or two like very poor or very short nights of sleep, uh, sympathetic nervous system activity will ramp up while you're awake basically just to try to keep you awake and alert uh even though you're you're poorly rested um and inadequate sleep also tends to be associated with increased pain perception so there there are other things that have a similar effect on the sympathetic nervous system as a training block would that would tend to increase pain perception rather than decrease it so you know that that is uh a set of physiological mechanisms that may be related to this phenomenon to some degree, but I'm skeptical that it it fully explains it. Um, One other possibility is just that, you know, maybe you ache more because you're moving less overall. So in in kind of like the pain and physical rehab literature, one of the things that you see pretty consistently (laughs) is that... uh, just exercise in general has a a pretty robust and consistent general analgesic effect or in other words like if you move more you tend to hurt less um just you know not not in all conceivable situations and all conceivable things that might be causing pain um but in general if you're if you're very sedentary um or if your activity levels decrease quite a bit that could make you hurt a little bit more. And if you're a little bit more active, you tend to just be in a little bit less discomfort. Um, So, you know, that could be all that's going on. Like it's your deload week. So you're you're taking it easier in the gym and maybe as a result, like, or even purposefully, one of the things people will often do when they're deloading is they just try to take it easy in general. Like the idea being, you know, I'm trying to rest, I'm trying to recuperate. So I'm not going to go out of my way to be active, or I might even go out of my way to be a bit of a couch potato this week to really, you know, let myself fully recuperate from this training block I just did. So, you know, that that could just be the dynamic at play, like your overall activity levels are lower, um, you know, and as a result, the general levels of discomfort you feel are a bit higher. So that's another potential explanation. Again, I don't, i I don't think that would be a complete explanation of this phenomenon, but that could be another uh, input in play. Um, and then another potential explanation um is it could just be a matter of of your brain basically filtering the inputs coming to it and kind of giving primacy to whatever the most intense input is. so that was that was a very bad just introduction to this explanation, but basically like you're training hard, maybe you're experiencing some pretty intense or, you know, at least like moderate DOMS, delayed onset muscle soreness. So, you know, it could be that those sensations like eh, maybe a little back pain, maybe some joint aches or whatever, um, like maybe those things are there all the time, but there's kind of a finite amount of stuff that your brain can make you aware of like your your conscious mind is is limited in terms of like how much you can perceive and process all at once and so it could just be a matter of like you know your your brain is trying to send you what it perceives to be the most relevant information and so you know it it makes you aware of pain and discomfort and so it could just be that you're you're experiencing enough muscle soreness when you're training hard that those kind of like lower level discomfort signals that are getting to your brain uh aren't intense enough to kind of get pushed into your conscious perception uh and then once you remove some of those other uh like dis- uncomfortable sensations uh as a result of training then maybe some more of that low level stuff uh is now you know th- the most intense discomfort you're feeling and so your brain just kind of pushes that into your conscious awareness so that, that could be what's going on as well. All of which is to say, I think of those three things I mentioned, all of them could be contributing. None of them could be contributing. It's hard to say. We don't know for sure. Um, so just generally interpret
0: that as food for thought. Good stuff. I will admit, um, I, normally you're the person that takes forever. I went really long with my first question, so I'm going to try to do this one really quickly. In All the right. interest of our dedication to shorter episodes, where, where, where are we at already? Uh, we're at about we're close to thirty minutes Hell in. Hell yeah! So <laughs> it's not not great. <laughs> uh, so uh, I had a question from numerous safety three seven nine six, and this was from a long time ago. I also was kind of putting this off, much like you were with the last question. I I just didn't want to get into it because it, it's about uh, ashwagandha and uh, performance effects. So the question is basically, what are my thoughts about ashwagandha for physical performance? And it also specifically refers to a meta-analysis. Now, when I first got this question, I was like, cool, a meta-analysis, I love digging into those. Uh, If you're a mass subscriber, like I had a really painful hobby for a while there of kind of taking metas apart, finding some little calculation errors, and then putting them back together. I say it was a painful hobby because that takes so long uh, Mm -hmm. if there's more than like four studies. Um, So anyway, I opened this up thinking it'd be an opportunity because I know the ashwagandha exercise literature is not that big. So I was like, oh, I can dig into this and probably find some errors and put it back together. I think the meta analysis itself was done quite well. Um, My concern is I just think the body of literature is so scattered and inconsistent and i think the mechanisms are so vague i truly don't know what to do with it and usually when i'm there with a supplement i say listen if if you're really intrigued and you want to give it a shot there's enough safety data to suggest that as long as it's not an adulterated product and not just and and you're following dosing guidelines like yeah, if you want to take a crack at it take a crack at it but I haven't seen enough evidence, uh, despite the existence of this meta-analysis, to to really feel good about recommending ashwagandha for performance purposes. Um, if you look around at some of the uh, research that people often point at when it comes to ashwagandha as a performance booster, there was one paper that I see floating around every now and then that, you know, like... Over the course of, I think, maybe eight weeks or so, uh, you know, it was kind of a standard length for for a training intervention. It was like eight, maybe 10 weeks or so. Uh, The Ashwagandha group added 46 kilograms to their bench press. (laughs) And so, like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it was eight weeks. So maybe that happened. Maybe it didn't. But if it did happen, (laughs) that's a lot of kilos. (laughs) My my question is to whom does that really generalize? You know, like ashwagandha is not going to add forty six kilograms to your bench press, so I don't know what to do with that particular finding. But that that's one that a lot of people get uh, excited about. And to be fair, like maybe they were just really, 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 really untrained. There was no familiarization, and so it was just like, hey, over the next eight weeks, we are going to teach you how to bench press and sprinkle in some additional supplement magic, and and here we go. But in any case, there's nothing that I can do with, with that. Right. Yeah. So there's also, um, yeah. If if you look at the effect sizes within this meta analysis, um, you would kind of be left to conclude that ashwagandha is more effective than creatine, um, by a pretty comfortable margin. And I find that to be implausible, uh, at, at this point in time, just because of inconsistency from study to study. And, and also, like I mentioned, uh, the the mechanism doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, some papers will, will talk very vaguely about ashwagandha's mechanisms and say like, well, it's, you know, you're doing these stressful things and ashwagandha will make them less stressful. And all of a sudden, you're benching 46 more kilograms. And I'm like, I got, you got to get me closer to how I got those 46 kilograms.
1: Yeah. I I mean, if that is the relevant mechanism, just like, dude, you should see a similar ergogenic effect from smoking weed. Right. Um,
0: (laughs) But just doing a little something to take the edge off in the evening. But yeah, I mean, I was looking at one paper and it says, it referred to, this is a quote, anti-stress effects, neuroprotective effects, immunomodulatory effects, and rejuvenating effects via the herbs interplay with the nervous system, the endocrine system, the cardiopulmonary system, energy production system, and the immune system, including analgesic, antimicrobial, anti-inflammatory, anti-tumor, anti-stress, anti-diabetic, neuroprotective, immunoprotective, and cardioprotective effects. Good shit. So like- I, what am I supposed to do with that? Like, yeah, it just does all things in all contexts. So, yeah. but when you when you start to dig into it a little bit, uh, you, you basically will find um, two primary like specific mechanisms. One is cortisol reduction, which I don't think you could really say, you know, yeah, cortisol is leading to the effects we see in that meta analysis, effects of that magnitude,
1: man. And
0: and in addition to that, there was a there was a paper, I think it came
1: from Stu Phillips's lab, maybe like 2013, 2014 thereabouts. Um, like like back when the acute hormone hypothesis for, for training adaptations was was kind of the the hot topic, and people were doing research to see like, you know, does does that seem to be like the primary mechanism for muscular adaptations? So they they had a paper where they were looking at the correlations between um between hormonal responses to training and uh, resistance training adaptations, it, it was either strength gains or hypertrophy. It, it was one of the two. Um, but if memory serves, because I, I didn't pull this this paper up before recording, if memory serves, they looked at changes in testosterone, cortisol, um, growth hormone, IGF-1. I, I think it was those four. And... None of them were associated with training adaptations except for cortisol, which was positively associated with training adaptations. Right. So like, you know, I I wouldn't necessarily want to take um, correlation data from a single paper at face value. But I mean, of the human data that I'm aware of, uh, a relatively large cortisol response post-training probably either doesn't meaningfully predict training adaptations or might be positively predictive of training adaptations so like if if that's the main
0: mechanism you're hanging your hat on like oh yeah this this reduces cortisol i don't know i don't even know that that's a good thing right and and you know there is a distinction between you know kind of basal resting cortisol yeah, yeah. throughout the day versus the acute fluctuations from training but yeah, for sure. again it's yeah th- there's Minimal evidence to suggest that a little reduction in cortisol, whether we're talking about during exercise post exercise or throughout the day, is going to have dramatic effects on body composition performance. Uh, so and then sometimes people say, well no, it's it's affecting the HPA or the HPG axis, but it's more affecting testosterone. It's increasing testosterone. And ashwagandha is not increasing your testosterone enough to have those types of ergogenic effects. You need a big change in testosterone to have a significant ergogenic effect on that magnitude. Has anyone checked to see the ectosterone content of, uh, of ashwagandha? <laughs> that's a good question. <laughs> um, another mechanism that does come up is sometimes they say, listen, it's got antioxidant properties, and that's good. But uh, I wrote a, an article for Stronger by Science about antioxidants. There are many of them. They do antioxidant things quite well, and they do not have these types of performance outcomes. So m- maybe, to be fair, maybe ashwagandha is remarkably efficacious as an ergogenic aid, and we simply have no idea what the mechanism is. Um, but to me, that's that's not enough to get me really to latch on to a supplement and recommend it. I need to see, um, you know, consistent, plausible effect sizes that make sense based on a mechanism that has been supported by some experimental research. Mm -hmm. Uh, And right now, there's just really a disconnect where the effect sizes are really big. There are very few of them. Uh, They are a bit inconsistent from study to study. I can't really point to a mechanism that would tie it all together. So when it comes to ashwagandha for performance, I'm personally going to sit this out. Um, I've taken ashwagandha b- before uh, for an extended period of time because uh, there is some amount of evidence suggesting that it might help with attenuating symptoms of like very mild anxiety. Um, so I've taken it for that. Um, whether or not I experienced a placebo effect from it, I don't really know. Uh, it didn't like change my life, but it seemed fine. Um, but I certainly didn't notice pronounced ergogenic effects when I was taking ashwagandha for, for that type of outcome. So, um, you know, if you're super intrigued by it, by all means, you know, you can give it a shot. Just make sure you're not getting an, an adulterated product. Make sure you're taking it within um, uh, recommended dosage guidelines. You can take a shot on it if you'd like, but personally, I don't see strong evidence uh, supporting um, a, an ergogenic effect with plausible, consistent effect sizes with a mechanism that would explain how it would be doing that type of thing. But I do want to say, I I want to acknowledge that, um, you know, this does kind of fall under that Ayurvedic medicine umbrella. There are some uh, traditions and cultures in which um, ashwagandha is held in really high regard. And so I don't mean to be disrespectful to any of those uh, traditional elements or cultural elements. Um, If you really like using ashwagandha for reasons... Uh, that are based on, you know, culture, tradition, whatever the case may be. I'm not trying to be a dick and, and, you know, insult that or take away from that or anything. But when people have these questions for us about supplements, it's usually through the prism of kind of uh, by the book evidence-based medicine or evidence-based practice. Do you see enough evidence empirically to support this? I'm not seeing the experimental evidence that I would need to justify promoting it as an ergogenic aid.
1: Yeah, and I I just want to add one thing to head off a maybe like a potential criticism of the the answer you just gave. Um so, you know, one of the things you said is like you'll you might would have more faith in it if there was more high quality human research on it. One one thing that I know that that some people's brains will go to is like, well, well, man, like, there's a reason that there's not that much research on it. Like, it's an herb; you can't patent it. Uh, there's no, there's no profit motive. So, like, people, people aren't going to, um, you know, pour the same sort of money into research because there, there's no way that you can like monetize this the same way you could other things. Like that—that's a common like anti-pharma talking point. Um, but in the case of supplement research, like that—that that just doesn't pass the smell test for reality cuz like a lot of the most studied supplements out there is shit that can't be patented cuz it's naturally occurring so like creatine for example or caffeine or fish oil i think those are the 3 like like 1 2 and 3 the most studied supplements in existence and they're they're all stuff that uh exists in nature that y- you can't patent like you can you can package and sell it but you know it's it's the same sort of thing as an herbal extract um, so yeah, I, I know that some people, some people's brains will go there as kind of an explanation for why there's not more high quality human data on it. Um, but in the case of supplementation that, uh, that critique just doesn't hold water.
0: Yeah. And, and like I said, uh, some of these findings, they're, they're just, the effect sizes just seem too big to me. Mm-hmm. And and I know that, uh, You know when people hear that the first thing they think is just like straight up fraud that's not what i'm suggesting but like a lot of times with studies the first few papers that trickle out for any particular uh supplement or treatment whatever the case may be a lot of times we see really inflated effect sizes and we see uh, effect sizes that are not generalizable, that that are not representative of the true effect size. And only after we get a ton of different studies do we start to see, oh, the early phase of research for this ingredient, we saw a lot of publication bias and we saw a lot of inflated effect sizes that were not necessarily due to fraud or anything like that, but they were just sampling error and kind of the like first finders effect, where mm-hmm. where the first time you do it, uh, you you know there there could be several very uninteresting ashwagandha studies that are just kind of sitting in cupboards, you know, in the file drawer. And, uh, you know, it's only when you happen to get this kind of non-generalizable, but flashy finding, do you say, Ooh, this is something that could really make a splash. So anyway, yeah, I'm not that into it as an ergogenic aid, but if you're into it, hey, more power to you.
1: I feel you. All right. Uh, moving on. I have a question, uh, from the stronger by science subreddit from no underscore attention sixty nine sixty nine, uh who says greg how are your lifts with weight loss have you been able to maintain somewhat mitigating losses any things you found that have helped maintain strength or th- that have helped you maintain your strength while cutting um and so th- this is another question that i've gotten a lot uh, I- i've been recently doing like weekly instagram q a's and this, this question or some version of it will be asked five or six times. Um, but since I don't save those Q and A's and we do save the podcast, I'm going to answer it here. Um, so yeah, I, I've gotten a lot weaker with my weight loss for reasons that I think are partial. Well, that I know are, are, uh, largely unrelated to the weight loss. So, um, I started my cut in February of last year. Um, towards the end of this month, it will be a year that, uh, that the road to the stage has been active. And I am positive that I've gotten a lot weaker, uh, through that process. Uh, but the primary reason why is through a lot of that time, I just wasn't lifting, um, or wasn't lifting particularly hard. So last, I don't remember for sure. It was either April or May. It was like when it was starting to get warm. Um, anyway, I broke my wrist and, uh, fucked up some of the the ligaments in my left elbow and so like a piece of advice that I commonly give people uh, and there's research to support this is if you injure one side of your body if you continue training the other side of your body it will help with strength maintenance for the injured side that you can't train um but yeah like I, I didn't do that uh mostly because it was my left arm which is yeah I'm a righty my left arm's my weak one anyway if I would have hurt my right arm, I would have said, ah, you know what? I'll, I'll keep training my left arm. That's fine. Um, but yeah, I just, I don't have any need for my right arm to get that much stronger when, when my left is already injured and I can't train it. Um, so yeah, that contributed. And then also since, since it was like a wrist issue, I had no grip strength. So, you know, I couldn't do any like rowing or whatnot. Couldn't really grip a bar well to deadlift. Um, also couldn't like just support any weight on my shoulders to squat didn't have the wrist mobility to front squat um like even a safety bar squat like just just the the pressure from the handles like I couldn't take any pressure down on that wrist at all so I just didn't do much of anything for a few months uh while that was rehabbing, and I think that was very very useful for me actually so one of the kind of like mental hurdles that I run into when trying to lose weight is since I do value strength training so much and since I value my own physical strength so much one of the one of the kind of mental hurdles I'd I'd always run up against is like when a diet would be going pretty well but my strength would start taking a little bit of a hit that made it challenging to continue to be bought into the diet. Um just because like I I did kind of have maybe like an irrational fear of getting any weaker. So I think I think breaking my wrist and not training for a while was actually very useful because then I could just kind of uh metabolize that and take it in. I'm like, well, you know, I, I can't train the way I want to for a while. I am going to get weaker. Um, but what's this other goal I have? I'm trying to lose weight. Okay, cool. Like I can, I can just focus on that. And then like, by the time everything was healed up enough that I could start training more consistently again, I was enough weaker (laughs) that, uh, it, 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 instead of it being stressful, like, oh man, I'm, I'm going to lose strength from this like current high level of strength. It's like, ah, whatever. I'm already so much weaker that I can just go lift weights and it's fun. Um, and I'm, <laughs> I'm not really losing anything on the back end. Um, so yeah, like I, I don't know the degree to which, uh, just not training affected my strength versus losing weight. Both of them probably contributed. Uh, but yeah, I, I've gotten a lot weaker and I'm at this point completely fine with it. Um, and, and now, now that I am training more consistently again, the strength is coming back really quickly. Like, uh the first time- like once my wrist could handle compressive loading pretty well and i I put some weight back on back on the bar to bench press uh I ground out a very very challenging single at three fifteen and then by like my third bench press workout back um I did like a pretty comfortable triple with three fifteen on low incline, so you know that's probably somewhere around like a triple at 355 ish for flat so you know it's it's coming back quick and i'm sure a month from now my strength will still be lower than it was pre-cut but like i i'm pretty sure i'll, I'll retrain back to a relatively strong place anyway uh don't know if that's the answer you were looking for i've definitely gotten weaker a lot of it was just from not training um And, uh, yeah, just, just accepting that I was going to lose strength and kind of using that injury as, as a mechanism to allow me to accept that, I think has actually been very, very helpful for me.
0: So, yep, that's, uh, that's where I'm at. Good stuff. So I'm up next. I got a a question that's been, I've gotten like three questions that are kind of like this. So I kind of merged them all into one, um, with the... Road to Athens taking the Stronger by Science world by storm. Everybody's <laughs> crazy about it. Uh, there's a lot of questions about cardio these days. So someone asked me, is high-intensity interval training better than low or moderate intensity steady state for uh, for body composition purposes? So looking at different approaches to cardio, high-intensity interv- intervals versus steady-state exercise. Uh, and also, what are some good interval training protocols And how do you gauge intensity for those protocols? So uh, I had a very recent article in Mass that was about this. There was a meta-analysis by James Steele and colleagues, and James is very, very good at doing research, uh, so highly recommend his work. Um, They looked at a big old group of studies comparing steady state versus interval type training. They were specifically looking at changes in fat mass and fat-free mass, so looking at body composition. Uh, And what they found was no meaningful difference in terms of fat loss or gains in fat-free mass. So fairly modest effect for both outcomes. Uh, In both cases, they lost about a quarter of a kilogram of fat and gained like a tenth of a kilogram of fat-free mass, um, which is an important point. So first of all, cardio or endurance type exercise. Uh, it's great for a lot of things. Um, but it's independent effects on weight loss really are not that big. So, um, a lot of times some people say, I'm going to take up running as an independent standalone fat loss, uh, endeavor. And, uh, in many cases, you know, you might find that you have really, really positive impacts on your health really great impacts on appetite regulation, things like that. But, you know, as a standalone fat loss um, intervention, probably leaves a little bit to be desired. Doesn't mean it's not great for your health and well-being, but if fat loss and weight loss truly are the goal, you probably want to do a mixture of doing some additional physical activity, whether it's cardio or otherwise, and then adding in a a dietary component of some type. Um, Anyway, it's important to recognize with this meta-analysis, this was uh, only one of the studies in the meta-analysis included resistance training. So, that obviously is a limitation considering that most of our listeners uh, do a lot of resistance training. Um, so, the question is, would the analysis, would it have turned out way different if if resistance training were uh, included in a lot of these individual studies? I would argue probably not Um you know the the interference effect is usually where people start getting really focused when you talk about combining cardio with resistance training. Uh, multiple meta analyses now have shown uh, that the interference effect is pretty minimal for strength and very minimal for hypertrophy, as long as your resistance training and your endurance training component are being managed effectively. Like if you really wanted to. You could use the interference effect to mess up your gains, but you'd have to be trying pretty hard. You'd, you'd have to be doing a lot of things poorly to make that work. In most cases- or, or just
1: already be at a really, really high level in one of the two pursuits.
0: Correct. Yeah. 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 But but in most cases, uh, adding a little bit of cardio or endurance training into uh, your lifting program, very unlikely to have a catastrophic effect- yeah on your strength gains and, and, and even less likely when it comes to body composition, hypertrophy. Uh, now, my favorite hit protocols that I like to do, if you choose to go that route, um, you could take one approach that would probably fall under the umbrella of sprint inter- interval training. And the distinction between high intensity interval training and sprint interval training is pretty straightforward. The sprint stuff is all out. It's maximal intensity. So I do a, a type of sprint interval training every now and then where I'll do 30 seconds All out, you know, RPE ten, maximal intensity, and then I'll spend ninety seconds below the kind. I I forget what the what the term is, but in in grad school they mentioned like the conversation threshold, basically an an intensity of endurance type exercise where you could still hold a pretty comfortable conversation while doing it, right? So it's I don't know how to convert that to a specific RPE, but pretty chill, pretty light. You're basically using 90 seconds to recover, and then you're right back into another 30 second sprint. So I'll do that for 10 or 15 sprints in whatever modality you choose, cycling, running, swimming, whatever the case may be. I also like a high intensity interval training protocol. That's very straightforward. It's just one minute on, one minute off. The high intensity uh, part of it, I try to do it an RPE of like nine or 10. So like the, the way I would I would frame that is if I'm doing it on a treadmill, by the end of that minute, I'm like, man, it's kinda kinda drifting toward the back of the treadmill a little bit. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's tough. You 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 feel like you're really at that nine or ten level with the RPE out of ten, obviously. And then the the again, the one minute recovery, I'll either rest entirely or I'll just do some light stuff below that conversational threshold where I could easily hold a conversation while I'm doing it. Another less intense protocol I'll do is, is quite similar, but I'll do two minutes on and two minutes off. And with that, I knock the RPE down a little bit to like an eight to maybe like a nine and a half. So not knocking the intensity down a little bit, but obviously doubling the duration of the, the high intensity interval there. Uh, and if I do that, I might only do like half the round. So instead of doing 10 one minute high interval bouts, I'll do like five two minutes high interval bouts. And like I said, the the modality is not critical. Uh, Cycling, swimming, rowing, running, paddling, whatever you want to do, you just want to make sure you find a safe way to do it. So you don't want to throw yourself off the back of a treadmill. You don't want to be in a precarious position where you like fatigue yourself swimming in open water. Obviously, that would be dangerous if you're not a strong swimmer. But uh, yeah, a lot of ways to do it. And high-intensity interval training is, you know, a, a very viable way to uh, to get some of the benefits of aerobic exercise or, or cardio type or endurance type exercise. Um, as long as you're not doing it so much with such high intensity that you are just completely wiped out for your lifting sessions, mm-hmm. you should be fine. Uh, but that is something to keep an eye on, obviously. And then finally, the biggest caveat is I answered this question specifically within the context of body composition if you're adding some type of endurance training for reasons that go beyond body composition or cardiovascular health or thing, cardiometabolic health, things like that, if you're trying to add in endurance type exercise to cultivate a specific physiological capacity, if you're doing it for a specific performance reason, it's a completely different answer. Obviously, when you're doing that you need to make sure that you are tailoring your endurance type exercise to really target the key energy systems that you're trying to develop. Um, So that would be a completely different scenario where you would have to really sort out the details with your intensity, your duration, your modality. But if you're just doing it for general health and well-being or to burn a couple extra calories, um, you know, things of that nature, really not critical whether you pick one or the other. Makes sense to me.
1: All right, um, wh- where are we at time-wise? Uh, 54 minutes. All right, so this will probably be my last one, I reckon. Cool. Uh, so Colin Quirk uh, from Reddit asks, um, have there been any attempts to quantify the benefits associated with personalizing training? For example, working with a coach or creating your own program versus following a more general program. Furthermore, is there a training age where this benefit kicks in? True novices probably don't need to personalize that much. Uh, at what point does this benefit, assuming it exists start to kick in? Um, so yeah, basically just asking, is there like ha- have we quantified the benefits associated with personalizing training? Um, and in terms of resistance training, not really. Um, so there there was a really, really cool paper. Uh, published in Frontiers a couple years back, uh, the title of which is Effectiveness of an Individualized Training Based on Force Velocity Profiling During Jumping by Jimenez Reyes and colleagues. Um, that will be linked in the show notes. I would recommend checking that out. Very, very cool paper. Um, what they did in that study, essentially, is the athletes, they, they would bring them in, do a force velocity profile, and... Um, probably don't have time to explain how how they would quantify whether someone was sh- strong versus fast but basically there there is a theoretically optimal uh force velocity profile for jumping where um you know if if you are naturally very explosive like if your your angular velocities can be very very fast com- like with no load but you're relatively weak uh, if you kind of like pull that load velocity profile up there somewhere in the middle that would roughly correspond with body weight uh, that will um, increase your your specific ability to create force and power for jumping versus someone who's already pretty strong, but then their their maximum contractile velocity is quite slow if you kind of if if you're able to kind of pull that curve out, that would also um increase power output there towards the middle of the curve where vertical jumping is occurring so basically they they profiled all of all of the subjects and uh they had a group where they um like trained whichever side of the curve people were bad at so basically if someone was strong but slow they would just do like very very low weight over speed type stuff to try to improve maximum contractile velocity and if someone was already uh, quite fast, but relatively weak, they would just have them train maximal strength to try to improve that functional capacity. Uh, and then they had another group of people as well who who kind of trained all capacities just in general. So they would do um, what's called like optimal load training, where essentially you would train with the sorts of power and force outputs that would be associated with, with what you're trying to improve. So in this case, vertical jump, And then also some strength work, also some speed work. So just kind of like a generalized vertical jumping program. And so in that study where they did tailor the training intervention for all of the individuals, um, the the group of people on the individualized program did have much better vertical jumping outcomes than just kind of the more generalized program did. So, you know, I I kind of view that as a proof of concept. Uh, You know, a maximum squat is not a maximum vertical jump. But it is kind of a proof of concept that if you um, adequately quantify what people are lacking in and develop an, indiv- an individualized training intervention to um, you know target those things where people could improve, then you might have have better outcomes. But like I said, that's not that's not specifically like trying to improve maximal strength. Um, one other thing, just to generally note is that oftentimes, like this this question asked about working with a coach to create an individualized program for you, one thing to note is that just merely having a coach, uh, regardless of the quality of their programming, might still improve your results. Uh, so there have been a handful of studies that have looked at supervised versus unsupervised training or uh, supervised training with a high ratio of lifters to trainers versus a low ratio of lifters to trainers um, and, and those studies will be linked in the show notes as well. but uh what what these studies find is essentially they they will have two groups of people. they put them on the same training program, and one of the groups has basically research assistants working with them the whole time so you know loading the bar for them spotting them giving them encouragement whatever uh and then the other group of people there is still a research assistant sitting in the room um and like you can ask them questions like hey i I think i'm supposed to go up and wait on this like should i or like hey how did my form look but they're not like actively monitoring and coaching you through the entire workout um but it's same training program regardless And in the supervised versus unsupervised groups, uh, the the people with more either supervision or more direct supervision or kind of more uh, one-on-one hands-on type supervision, even on the same training program, those people tend to uh, build more strength. So, you know, (laughs) regardless of the individualized program, just simply having a coach and someone that you're accountable to, especially if it's someone you can work with in person, that in and of itself might improve your results. Um, And one other thing to note as well is, even though there haven't been all that many studies in resistance training that have specifically looked at individualizing training in the way we would probably think of it, so, you know, doing uh, a big intake questionnaire to try to tailor every programming variable to someone's uh, unique needs and specifications, there are a lot of studies that use... uh, a research paradigm called a within subject unilateral design where basically if there are two training interventions instead of recruiting subjects and splitting them into two groups what you do is just recruit one group of subjects and uh like split their sides of their body into different training programs so like you know you might have one leg doing high intensity training and the other leg doing high volume training um and, and essentially you look to see if Like within individual, um, you know, someone's leg responds much better to one style of programming versus another, uh, or just like one mix of training variables versus another. And in those studies, what you tend to see is that people who respond well to training just respond well to training, period. And people who don't respond well to training don't respond well to training, period. Like the the within-subject correlation between training responses leg-to-leg or arm-to-arm tend to be quite high, where if if you respond well to one program, you'll probably respond well to the other program as well. Uh, There was one particular within-subject unilateral design study uh, that's not coming to mind right now, but the details of it come to mind. Um, So it was looking at manipulating frequency and volume, where if memory serves, there were three conditions. There was a twice-per-week training, three times-per-week training, and five times-per-week training, if memory serves. Um, and essentially, the the workout days were the same regardless. So, you know, it, it was just, like, the three sets of quad work every time you train. Um, and so, you know, the, uh, like, like, training five times per week not only was frequency higher, but total volume was higher as well because the per-session volume was the same regardless. And so that was, that study also used a within-subject unilateral design, and that's the only paper coming to mind where there really were pretty big uh, within-individual differences, where some of the people did respond quite a bit better to the lower volume and frequency, and some people did respond quite a bit better to the higher volume and frequency, where like, you know, if you had one 2x-leg and one 5x-leg, on average there were larger gains in the 5x-legs than the 2x-legs. But there were quite a few individuals where the 2x leg or the 3x leg did have quite a bit larger gains than the 5x leg. And that suggests to me, like, because there have been all sorts of interventions that have used um, that sort of experimental design, and and that's the only study coming to mind that used that type of intervention where there were pretty large within-subject differences between sides of their body, which suggests to me that more than anything else, the factor that needs to be individualized is just total training volume and and kind of like the optimal level of volume uh, for hypertrophy and strength outcomes probably does vary quite a bit between individuals. So, you know, if you're looking for, you know, hey, I, I do want to individualize my training, what variable should I look at that will likely give me the most bang for my buck? Um, I think a, a combination of volume and frequency probably are the things that need to be individualized the most. Um, and other factors, you know, might make a small difference, but but probably aren't going to make just a night and day difference in terms of results. So yeah, that wasn't a very direct and succinct answer to that question. Long story short, there's there's not that much research on specifically on just kind of the generalized concept of individualizing resistance training versus putting everyone on the same program largely just because that would be a difficult uh study to design and for it to pass peer review like you know if if you're say trying to customize four different variables you got frequency intensity volume and exercise selection or something like that and you have a big screening questionnaire where you know, you try to to optimize all four of those variables for a group of 20 people versus another group of 20 people who are all just put on the same training program, you would probably wind up with, on average, different enough training interventions in those two groups that reviewers would, would look at the paper and be like, well, you know, wh- what are you actually studying here? Like, maybe the concept of in- individualization, but what if the individualized group just wound up training with way higher training volumes. Like could you really say that individualization was the driver here versus just whatever other training variables wound up differing between the groups? So, you know, it, I would be interested in reading that study, but I um <laughs> I would not uh I would not want to be the person <laughs> designing and conducting that study. So yeah, direct research pretty lacking. Um, but like I said, with the, with the vertical jump study, there is just kind of like conceptual evidence in favor of individualization. I do think that a lot of the benefits from working with a coach might come from the program itself, but I think a lot of them just come from working with a coach, and there are inherent benefits to doing that. Um, and if you're interested in kind of indirect evidence related to individualizing training variables and the sorts of magnitudes of difference you, you could expect from tweaking a variable here or there, just keep an eye out for for studies that employ a within-subject unilateral design, because that that's sort of the research approach that gives us the best evidence for the for the types of differences you could expect within subject from from tweaking a variable here or there.
0: You know, I think you said something really important there um, that somebody ought to do that research as long as it's not you. Yep. Um... As you know, I cut my teeth in the laboratory with my hands on the ultrasound. Uh, And the further I get removed from it, I find myself saying that more and more and more. (laughs) I'm just like, man, somebody's got to do this. Um, But absolutely not me. It it is hard work, man. Doing research is tough. And in that spirit, I do want to kind of clarify and contextualize one of my previous answers I was talking uh, flippantly about a study about ashwagandha. And I said like, oh, bench press went up 46 kilograms. Maybe that happened. Maybe it didn't. I said something like that. I want to clarify that because I, I, I don't want it to sound like I'm alleging fraud or disparaging the individuals associated with the study. My concern with that study is uh, the, cha- the change in bench press, even in the placebo group, is astronomical it wasn't it like 24
1: kilos in the placebo group or something like that uh
0: 26 yeah yeah so so the reason i say you know maybe that happened maybe it didn't um is not that i you know i'm not like alleging anything nefarious or anything like that but my concern is that without uh, a really good standard or a really good familiarization phase if you are recruiting from a pool of individuals who are ready to add that much to their bench press in eight weeks There is so much noise and volatility. There are so many big things happening in your data fully unrelated to the supplement intervention that it really undermines the generalizability of those findings. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to clarify that point. Uh, My big concern there is like if you have this group of people who they're just going to touch this weight and grow no matter what, it's really hard to make inferences about a supplement within that context. And I think that the... I think that the baseline bench press measurements were very very low and probably they would have had more generalizable data if they just kind of bit the bullet and said let's do let's do 6 weeks or 8 weeks of familiarization and then yeah. begin the supplement trial because when you've got, you know, the placebo group almost doubling their bench press in 8 weeks what could you possibly say about what the the actual supplement's doing there's so much noise and volatility i mean mm-hmm. uh yeah there there's just a lot of moving parts when you have that much lack of familiarity with the testing outcome that's being measured yeah so um yeah it's it's one of those things when you when you do the research you you realize like man we got to give people a break and be more charitable with you know with how we interpret studies but Anyway, I just wanted to clarify that uh, to uh, you know, out of respect for the authors. Now uh, to play us out, uh, stronger by science is the name of the show. I assume that many of our listeners enjoy science. As an extension of that, mm-hmm. one of my big regrets in life um, that I may never shake is I never got to take a good comparative physiology course where you look at physiology of different animals because physiology. In the animal kingdom is insane, like absolutely remarkable. So I assume that our listeners love a good physiology, fun fact. And boy, do I have a couple. Um, I was reading about the Arctic waters. Don't ask why. That's not important. I was curious, but Mm -hmm. I came across two animals that uh, this is just mind blowing. So the longest living mammal Happens to be uh, up in the northern waters, uh, floating around in the ocean there. Longest living mammal is the bowhead whale lifespan. We've already talked about this, so I'm not going to do the pretend guessing game. This is a whale, and the lifespan is estimated up to 200, maybe even 300 years uh, for a mammal, just absolutely insane. That's a long time. So I heard that, and I was like, "Man, I can't believe these things are floating around in the water up there. Clearly, they're the oldest thing around." Not even true. In the same, the very same waters, uh, floating around up there is the Greenland shark. This is not a mammal, obviously, but the longest living vertebrate, uh, according to these estimates, lifespan of up to four hundred to maybe even five hundred years. Uh, just absolutely incredible. So I must admit, you know, right now, one of the things I see on Instagram all the time is sensationalizing, uh, ice baths for literally every outcome, you know, uh, take a ice bath. If you want to grow taller, if your teeth are itchy, uh, everything in between. So, uh, maybe I'm wrong, dude. Maybe that's, what's doing it is these, uh, these sharks and these whales are floating around up there in the chilly Arctic waters. And they're just living like five hundred years. Pretty incredible. Maybe so. Who's to say? All right. Are you good for this episode? Are we ready to close it out? Hmm. Any parting words for the uh, the listeners?
1: Let me think. No, I don't think so. Perfect. Le- all right.
0: It, that'll generate a lot of curiosity for what you'll <laughs> what you'll cook up next week. Um, all right. So that does it for our special Q and A episode here. We will be back in exactly one week. As always, thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do. So we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening. And we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.